Listener Production. The following episode of Fofop is rated MA. It contains alternating hosts, a rotating roster of guests, and mild course language. Fofop advises that it is not suitable for anyone under the age of 15, or anyone who came here looking for one of those highbrow NPR type podcasts. Minors must be accompanied by a parent or guardian. This is John Deek speaking. Hello and welcome to Fofop. I'm Charlie Clawson and you are back in the video store with the Pharaoh of the Flicks, the maestro of the movies. It's Guy Davis. Welcome back. Charlie, pleasure to be here and thank you very much for inviting me back for another shift at the video store. I mean, I, I was always talking, nice to earn a little bit of minimum wage. <laughs> I was talking to a mate the other day about, you know, we were commiserating about the depth of the video store and how much we still enjoy the experience. And we're sort of spitballing, like, how could you sort of, could you do a pop-up at like a film festival or something where you just create a little pop-up shop that replicates a video store, just like a one of those kind of off-brand, non-franchise video stores, those gems you'd find, you know. With exactly, the, yeah. You, yeah, you with, don't want to subs- With the band in, all the band in Queensland horror movies. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You don't want to be the uh, the corporate monstrosity. Well, the the one beginning with B, shall yeah, we say? Yeah. Uh, no, you want to be a, what they call in America a mom and mom pop and pop. Store. Exactly, mom and pop store. Yeah, because he was saying like, what you could do is he said, you know, it's, he hates the, the streaming experience of like just scrolling, 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 never finding anything. And he said, what if like you could sort of go in and you actually had. VHS style posters made for modern films. And so people could go in and then you don't have to take a tape out. They just give you like a USB that's preloaded with the films you want. So you get your <laughs> one overnight and seven weeklies or whatever it is. That is pretty good. Charlie, have you heard of Tubi? Do you know the uh, yes. streaming service Tubi? Yeah. Because mm. that's winning a lot of fans, basically because it does have that independent video store feel, mainly because it's just sort of grabbing, uh, shall we say, not scuzzy, <laughs> but uh, low-budget masterpieces from yeah from all and sundry, and you know it's basically a free service. You've got a little bit of advertising either started throughout the movie or at the top and tail or whatever. But yeah, I'm I'm finding on quote unquote film Twitter is like I think Tubi's got its own hashtag or you know Tubi Love something. Yeah, like right. That. Maybe they so, want to. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's... they want to sponsor the video store. Tubi, if you're listening and you want to sponsor this show. Get in touch. Get in touch you, with us. You know what to do. You know who to get in touch with. <laughs> now, uh, the topic this episode is another one that the brilliant Guy Davis has come up with. Uh, he sent me a message saying, a bad movie recommendations. So the criteria being uh, a film that you've recommended that just didn't sort of hit the mark. Maybe it was a bit too weird for the group of people you're with or had like a full-on sex scene then you were sitting with your parents or just – one of those kind of films which you enjoyed, but it did not hit the mark with a with another audience. Um, obviously, this is very subjective. I mean, all of our episodes are subjective, but this one in particular, I think, you know, we're not saying these films are objectively good or bad, but subjectively, it was a bad recommendation in the instances <laughs> in which you experienced them. Would you agree? That is 100% correct. They just made for a very uncomfortable viewing experience, whether it was with... Uh, Friends who viewed you in a new light after you brought a particular movie to the party, a, a, a potential romance that was just nipped in the bud by your uh, saying, hey, let's check out this David Cronenberg movie. Or, you know, 
I'm, I'm thinking of one particular instance. I mean, this wasn't necessarily all that bad, but I just it did suck the oxygen out of the room for a few minutes. Mm. I was watching Commando with my folks. Yeah, I don't know why my mum. I don't think my mum was actually paying attention. In all honesty, she was probably reading the paper and you know, casually looking down and go, mm, "That Arnold Schwarzenegger is well built." Uh, but there's a bit in it where Sully, played by the great David Patrick Kelly, he's basically putting the hard word on Ray Dawn Chong as uh, she walks through the airport. She's not having any of it. And then finally he just gives up in frustration, slurs at her, you fucking whore. And I was like, mm, wonder, how, wonder how this is playing with uh, with Bob and Margaret. But, I mean, I had, oh, oh God, that just gave me, gave me a flashback of something even worse. Um, there's a great horror movie called Black Christmas. It's been remade a couple of times, mm. uh, most recently, just a couple of years ago. But the original and best has been made in like 1974, it's got uh, Olivia Hussey, the great, uh, the late great Margot Kidder, and it's sort of a, a proto Halloween type where a bunch of girls in a, a college sorority are yeah, stalked by this evil character named Billy, and Billy will occasionally get on the phone, mm, you know, sweet talk to uh, whoever's on the other other end of the line. This was the first time I ever heard the c word in a movie, right? And my dad is there watching it with me, and I mean, I think I'd gone to the video shop with him at about age ten or eleven, and said. Oh, I like a good scary movie, Dad. Can I get Black Christmas? And here's Billy on the phone sort of talking about pretty pink C words. I, I mean, I know we swear occasionally on in the video store, Charlie, but I'm yeah. not going to drop the C-bomb yeah. this particular moment. Yeah, I think <laughs> Dad's looking at me like, what kind of weird perverted son am I raising that he, you know, wants to watch this kind of thing? One of the, the most insulting things I think someone ever inferred about me, I, I was dating this girl in the late 90s. We went on a couple of dates, saw a couple of different films, and the first film we saw was Sleepers. And I kind of thought the Sleepers is a bit overcooked. Like I get, you know, it's a great cast and stuff. I just find the whole thing a bit overwrought and kind of a bit on the nose. And then the next week we went and saw Multiplicity. I'm a big Michael Keaton fan. Oh, great. He's doing it. Harold Ramis is directing. This will be great. And I remember coming out of Multiplicity and her looking at me and going, oh, it's funny. Like, I picked Sleepers last week and you picked Multiplicity this week. I can see why. You're the kind of guy who likes Multiplicity. (laughs) (laughs) And And it sort of has rung in my ears for like, you know, for 25 years since. I'm the kind of guy who likes Multiplicity. I mean, it could have a million meanings. (laughs) Not unlike the movie itself. But, yeah, yeah, Nice, nice. But very much in the way that that sounds like, that's your type of movie, isn't it? Like, yes, it is. What? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you brought up the discomfort of uh, watching a movie with your parents where there is a vulgar language and, 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 and all this kind of stuff. And that actually brings me to my first film. And it was a very similar experience. And it was all on me because um, uh, I was one of those loser kids in the 80s who didn't have a VHS player. Like, we couldn't afford one. That was the word uh, brought down from my family. So we would occasionally borrow friends when they went on holidays. We would borrow their VHS. And then the trip to the video store was extra special. We got one of our own by about 1987. I think that, you know, mum and dad couldn't hold out any longer. And I remember, so we got this, uh, we got this friend's VHS player for the weekend. And so we went up to the video store. And I loved Beverly Hills Cop. Like, you know, I was just the right age, uh, Eddie Murphy. Like, it's just a – that. now that's an objectively great movie. Best mix of comedy and action, you know, one of the all-time great comedy action movies. So I see Bev- Beverly Hills Cop too, and I'm like, well, the first one was so great. Uh, the second one can only be better, right? 
And so I talked my mum into, because I think it had quite a high rating, not an R rating, but it was definitely not a PG rating at the time. Uh, the sequel directed by Tony Scott, who is basically, when you think of 80s films, you're thinking of Tony Scott, that aesthetic, right? Very muscular filmmaker, to be kind. <laughs> Body oil and cocaine. Yeah, exactly. Because I, I, I just watched, I was just uh, scrubbing through Beverly Hills Cop 2 before we jumped on, and I'm like, this looks like cocaine on film. Like, the whole thing just looks like cocaine. It really does, doesn't it? I mean, because, you know, the first Beverly Hills Cop, directed by uh, Martin Brest, you know, a really good filmmaker, made Midnight Run, and, uh, well, I like Beat Joe Black, not many people do. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it, it feels like a sort of a legitimately gritty cop crime comedy perfect balance of those two elements right yeah not 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 slick it feels it feels almost like a, a 70s movie yeah or a very early 80s movie it's like the wire with comedy <laughs> very much so yeah, yeah and then you get to a couple of years later with beverly hills cop 2 tony scott at the helm and it's like oh this this is the difference between early 80s and late 80s yeah yeah you know? it's and gloss. If you think, just yeah, gloss this is kind of when you think of the 80s nowadays all that sort of synth wave kind of feel and everything neon and pastel and all that. Yeah, this is the kind of thing that that really exemplifies that. Yeah, but the film, like, just generally is mean-spirited. Like, it has it a really mean-spirited tone. And even, like, Axel Foley's, like, improvs and the way he's always conning people and working the angles and stuff, it all comes across as really irritating and unlikable. Like, he's just constantly you know, humiliating people or taking advantage of people's good nature or, you know, like when he steals a house, you know, he, he convinces like a foreman that like, you know, the building's being condemned and, you know, it's just none of, there's none of that charm of the original Beverly Hills Cop. None of it feels earned. It all feels quite entitled. But then the, right. the violence is also like you're talking <laughs> like Squib City. And the first film, like you say, is kind of gritty violence. But this feels much more kind of like voyeuristically violent. But I remember sitting there with my parents and get it. We got up to uh, I think it was uh, where they get to the Playboy Mansion, where um, they're you know they're trying to find some guy and you know Hef comes over. They have their little interaction and Hef walks off and, and Rosewood and Taggart say to Axel Foley, "What do we do now?" And Axel says, "We follow our dicks." And I remember my father turning to my mum and saying. All I've seen this guy do is call women bitches and rip people off and be a real prick of a bloke. I can't believe he's the hero. <laughs> My dad was having none of it, <laughs> absolutely none of it. And then it all culminates at the very end because one of the subplots is that Taggart, who's the older of the two cops, the you know the button-down detectives, you know his wife's left him. And then at the end of the film, when it's all being wrapped up, you know we find out that Taggart you know, is uh, getting back together with his wife. And it's like meant to be like a tender moment of the three buddies, you know, like saying their farewells. And he has a line where he says, uh, uh, he plays down why she's come back. And she's like, no, she's coming back because I've got cable. And Axel Foley's like, no, she's coming back because of your cable pointing to his dick. And I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ. Like we couldn't even, we couldn't even do like the sentimental farewell without this some kind of gross crass joke. And I actually thought that maybe – you know, because Tony Scott has has been kind of uh, deified in, in you know in retrospect because of that eighties, and so I was thinking, well, maybe it's going to be one of those films that actually has improved with age. No, no. like it, it it has this aesthetically, sure, absolutely, but everything else about it is just like, oh god, what a drop off from that first film. It re it's it, more than anything else. It's just a great nostalgia trip if you want to go back and revisit nineteen eighty seven or nineteen eighty six or whenever it came out. That's primarily it because you, you're you're hundred percent right about the whole. I mean. In Beverly Hills Cop 1, 
he feels confident. Eddie Murphy feels confident. Mm. In this, he feels cocky. Cocky, that's right, yeah. Yeah. So it's a... It's a little disappointing, but uh, we'll, we will say this. It kicks the shit out of Beverly Hills Cop 3. Yeah, I don't think I've even actually ever sat through it. It's at a, like an amusement park, is that right? It is, yeah. And yeah, just wrapped, uh, John- they've just wrapped Beverly Hills Cop 4, I believe, because a mate of mine in the States is working with Bronson Pinochet. Is that how you say his name? Uh, uh, is it Pinchot? Pinchot. Pinchot? Um, yeah, Serge. Pinchot. And so apparently he's back as well. And it's like, oh, okay. Well, I mean- uh, despite what I've just said, I'm I'm curious to see what. Apparently, it's an Australian guy directing this one, the uh, the fourth one. He's oh. like a, a commercials guy, not Patrick Hughes. No, no, no. But um, I just read somewhere recently. Oh, directed by this guy. No. I want to say Mark Barron. That's not obviously <laughs> not his name, but it's Mark something. Yeah, making his uh, making his feature film debut. I look forward to watching it on on some streaming platform. <laughs> like that's not going to go to cinema, surely. I don't think it is, no. no. And it's doing that thing like Top Gun Maverick. I think it's actually called Beverly Hills Cop Axel, Axel Foley. Oh, fuck off. Um, fuck Which, off. Like, I'm over this shit. Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right. waiting for Godfather 4, Corleone. Yeah, great. <laughs> uh, what's your first film, Guy? A horror movie from uh, 1981, I believe, mm. called The Burning. Yes, you've brought this up before on this show. This is a favourite of yours. Yeah, so my apologies if I'm, you know, sort of trotting out old stories here, but uh, this was an abject lesson for me in know your audience mm-hmm. <laughs> because I'll set the scene for you. I was um, much like Charlie Clawson, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> actually no, Charlie Clawson is actually a professional actor. I just wanted to be an actor. So I was, you know, a production at school and – we all had to come back to school maybe two days before the, um, the start of term officially so we could, you know, do rehearsals for this production. Of, I think it was Guys and Dolls. Right. Who are you? I was the one who didn't sing. I was the cop. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, and this, I, was, I was as surprised as anybody to discover this, you know, when we had singing auditions, they said, your voice is too deep. I'm oh, like, right. wait, what? Because, you know, I was about – five, seven, and really skinny. But then I'd sing and it sort of sounded like um, Barry White. <laughs> it was so strange. So Neither um, guy nor a- doll. And ironic that you couldn't get cast as a guy. <laughs> guy. That's <laughs> good. <laughs> so I, had the, I just had the, uh, the, um, the speaking part. But we were all back at school and um, sort of having this boot camp of, uh, of training and staying over. Mm-hmm. And one night, he's like, oh, well, how about we just have a movie night? And th- there was a video shop nearby that I was a um, – that I had a membership for. And I said, well – and everyone's like, oh, guy, you know movies. Can you get us something? Maybe maybe something scary. And then a comedy as well. So I came back with The Burning. I mean – and um, in hindsight, I probably should have got something like Halloween, which is <laughs> – Same genre but less violent. Yes, a little classier, a little yeah. more elegant and, you know, sp- scary but not – like the burning, utterly off-putting in every way. Yeah, the because, burning. Now uh, the burning has a very. I mean, it's tame by today's standards, but a very famous uh, slaughter scene, canoe scene, where isn't it like half the main cast get annihilated in the space of like thirty seconds? Yeah, they're all in a, in canoes and they're approaching this. I'll give you the setup of the burning. Uh, it's a summer camp. Oh, and, this sounds uh, familiar. It's summer camps. You've got people sitting around the campfire, uh, telling spooky stories, and this one is about. Uh, 
a gang of kids at this uh, summer camp a few years ago who had it really in for the caretaker whose name is Cropsy. Cropsy. Yeah. And they play a prank on him. The prank goes horribly wrong. Cropsy's essentially burned to a crisp when he, you know, for some reason Cropsy has a jerry can full of petrol next to his bed oh, yeah. that he knocked over. As you do. Yeah, set him on fire. He is now, in the words of one character, a Big Mac. Well done. But he's yeah returned to this other camp and he just goes around with his, his big old uh, shears. garden shears and makes mincemeat of just anyone in his way. Yeah. So you've got a bunch of kids there. One of the kids is young Jason Alexander, yeah. George Costanza, with a full head of hair. Yeah, and um, like playing like a very un-George Costanza type role, like a kind of sort of not a jock, but sort of like a likable kind of cool guy. He's like a Belushi. Yeah. He's like a, yeah. And he, I remember watching this and going, I really like this guy. He's fantastic. I hope he goes on and does something. And Turns out. he naturally went on and did something. Yeah. But the thing about the burning, and this maybe speaks to – one of the credits in its opening credits, it says created by Harvey and Bob Weinstein. So it's like a, a very early Miramax production. This is the one that put them on the map, right? It kind of is. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, your typical slasher, but it just pushes things. It pushes the envelope just a little bit too much. The violence is just a little bit too intense. The sex scenes get a little bit too, <laughs> too raunchy. There's more full frontal female nudity than you might expect from uh, from a slasher. And we're watching this and, you know, people are getting kind of grossed out and kind of discomforting. And I can feel people looking over at me occasionally like, what the fuck is wrong with you? This this one guy? <laughs> Got us this one. <laughs> it, it does become like a horrible, like a Rorschach for your own twisted psyche that you like. It it's does, like, you, you know what you are? You are De Niro and Taxi Driver taking Sybil Shepherd to watch a porno. <laughs> On the first date. You're like, what? Isn't this what everyone yeah, watches? Like, no, no. People watch this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cou- couples go to this. <laughs> I mean, was the was so you went to a co-ed school, right? Do you think because I in my okay. head, I'm like, you know, as someone who attended an all-boys school, like the more fucked up and weird the movie to sleep over, the better. Like that's where we saw society for the first time. So like Billy Warlock, you know, nice. st- coming out of someone's like anus or something. I seem to recall there's some kind of the face, in, face yeah. in between butt cheeks or something like that. <laughs> but this did not play the same way. Clearly, with your with your drama gang. <laughs> no, no. I think you, you you want a spooky movie where you can sort of like, oh, you know. Grab the hand of the person. Next, oh, yeah. <laughs> isn't not- it silly that we were scared like that? Then a little bit of a lingering glance. What What does uh, Bella Lugosi, aka Martin Landau, say in Ed Wood? It's like, if you want to get lucky with the honey, take her to see Dracula. It's like, want to sleep alone? <laughs> Watch the burning. Yeah, no one gets turned on by seeing Fisher Stevens have his fingers cut off on a canoe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's excellent effects work by Tom Savini. It's uh, it's you know. The blood and gore is quite marvellous if you're into that kind of thing. But, yeah, it just it pushes things just a little bit too far. Maybe that's what horror movies are meant to do, but you got to know your audience, as I discovered that night. It is funny, though, with horror. Like, I'm not a particularly fond of, like, torture porn. Like, you know, that sort of second wave we had of torture porn after Saw. I don't really – I mean, I don't find it horrifying. Like, it's not sort of a concept that – I mean, it upsets me visually and viscerally because I don't like seeing like limbs come apart. But it's not a horrific situation to me. It's not something that I contemplate. Oh my god, this would be awful. I'm just actually repulsed by it. But I've never at any stage gone, oh, the people who make this are sadists. You know, like I've always had the sort of idea that 
okay, well, this is just a form of expression in, in one form or another. But there is this real knee-jerk reaction, even with kind of like well-established film critics where they will accuse a filmmaker of like yeah. echoing the values of the characters in a horror film. And I'm always like, that's strange. Like you don't really do that with other genres. But I remember reading a review of Wolf Creek that was, I think it was Roger Ebert, and he was like, this film is sadistic. You know, whatever the line is, it crosses it by a, a mile. I'm like, hang on. Like what are you talking? You understand yeah. it's still a movie, right? Yeah. Don't you know that someone like Eli Roth is kind of a carny? Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah, it's a house of horrors. That's what, that's what you get used to. Holly Hunter yeah. is also in The Burning too, right? One of her first roles. She is not a speaking role, no, but, right. uh, but she's definitely in the I mean, Well, it's, appropriate it's that she'd later on to do the Weinstein's piano, that she has a non-speaking role. And <laughs> <laughs> maybe they, they saw her in The Burning. They're like, oh, we've got – when the piano script came up, they're like, we've got the perfect actress for this. Do we have a mute for you? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, now, the next film I want to talk about is uh, was a bad recommendation for a completely different reason. But again, it sort of involves teenagers. Um, I was, uh, like you, Guy, a bit of a, a young film nerd, um, you know, someone who looked forward to the Oscars as much as the grand final. Um, how times have changed. Still love the grand Indeed. final. Do we- not give a fuck about the Oscars anymore. In fact, they're happening right now or happened and I don't care. I have not cared for years. I was, yeah, occasionally keeping an eye on Twitter. It's like, oh, so-and-so got it. Okay, that's that's good, I guess. Yeah, but, I mean, was I interested? Absolutely not. Uh, so I was a bit unusual uh, compared to my friends. These are the same, like, teenage mates who, you know, when I had to bring a horror movie, I busted out The Exorcist and they found it incredibly slow and boring. They couldn't make it through the first, like, half hour. So that's the kind of crowd I'm working with. And I made the mistake. I went and saw Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker, hang on, who goes first? Bram Stoker's Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula or Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula? Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. You you got it, yeah. One thing I do admire about Coppola, though, he does have that respect for the author because it's, I mean, it's Mario Puzo's The Godfather in the the opening credits. It's Bram Stoker's Dracula. And it's even John Grisham's The Rainmaker. Oh, really? Uh, You don't need to pay that much credit. (laughs) Come on, One of these things is not like the other. Yeah. So I saw this at the movies and I... Loved it. Like, I just thought it was so beautiful so, and horny and just, like, amazing. And I had a massive crush on Winona Ryder at the time. And, you know, she is, like, just Victorian beauty in this, like, styled mm. so beautifully. You've got a topless Monica Bellucci. You've got, uh, you know, um, Sadie Frost and Winona Ryder. So I went to school the next week and said, I just saw this fucking, like, there's a new Dracula film. And like it's bloody, but it's all there's like babes in it, and and so got all my friends super excited to come watch Dracula because they're thinking it's going to be like it's Dracula, it's like a vampire's going to be ripping throats out and stuff, and we're going to see boobs and stuff. But you're not misrepresenting it at all. Not misrepresenting not to my mind, it anyway. But it's just, I guess it's all context, right? They were not expecting a kind of like, I guess, what would you say? It's almost like a baroque, operatic. Yeah, you know, sort of a, a high budget hammer horror. You know, if hammer, what hammer mm. horror aspired to be. Um, and the boobs weren't even that good. Like, there's fleeting at most, or like shot in silhouette. It's not like you know, uh, 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 like uh, Friday the 13th or anything like that. No. It's, just, it's arty. Not it's, really, it's, it's not really catering boobs. to the male gaze, yeah, shall we like- say. No, I mean, but 
I was about to take issue there with you say the boobs aren't that good. They're Monica Bellucci boobs. Oh, fantastic Charlie, boobs, but the way they're but the way they're shot was was, no, ta- was tasteful not, and artistic. Not, uh, lingered upon, which was not tolerated by a, a group of thirteen year old boys <laughs> who wanted to see something much grosser. Uh, so I remember them like being so bored during the film, and I kept saying to them, just like, hold on, it gets really bloody at the end. You know, he turns into a giant bat and they cut his throat and chop his head off and shit. But by then, I'd lost them, and I was ragged mercilessly for that choice. It's like never let Charlie recommend a film again. That's a damn shame. I mean, all due respect to your friends here, they've got terrible taste. Bram Stoker's Dracula is an absolute banger. It is a fantastic movie, and that is one that stands up, and I think it's because, well, there is one element that doesn't stand up, and it didn't stand up at the time. You know what I'm talking about? I know who you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, then you know what I'm saying. Everybody loves him now. But uh, our man Keanu back then was- It is a baffling mm, choice. Cutting it. It's a baffling choice. Every other cast member is so perfectly cast and yeah. is doing what they're doing so well. And, I mean, I love Keanu, but he, but he, he shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> like, it's like when you see him in Much Ado About Nothing. It's like, it's just, it's too anachronistic. It doesn't make sense. It's hurting my ears and my brain. That's exactly right. I mean, I actually don't mind him in Much Ado About Nothing. I don't think he's, he's not quite polished enough with the with Iamic Pentameter and all the Shakespearean stuff to, to fully nail it, but he kind of gets the mood of the character right in, in dark, Much Ado yeah. About Nothing. He's meant to be all sort of glowering and malevolent. Malevolent? Malevolent. No, I can't <laughs> even get it right there. France. Uh, he's... <laughs> But he sort of nails that aspect of it. But, yeah, when he opens his mouth to speak, it's like, oh, your line delivery is just not doing it there. And, it, yeah, even worse in Bram Stoker's Dracula. I mean, I buy him as this, you know, ardent, Dopey. sincere, yeah. love-struck young man. But, yeah, I mean, the, the accent that he's doing, and he just can't, he kind of feels constrained and stiff and doesn't really work. Whose accent is worse, his in Bram Stoker's or Kevin Costner's in Prince of Thieves? What, which is the worst? I, it's Costner, yeah. I think. Yeah, I mean, at, le- at least Keanu's trying. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I think that because it is a like a highly imaginative view of the Victorian era, it, it looks beautiful to this day. Like if you can get your hands on a Blu-ray, it holds up incredibly well and hasn't really dated even the effects because a lot of them are quite practical, cool, yeah. look amazing. Yeah, I, it's it's one of the few movies I've sort of gone through various iterations. I I probably had a VHS of it, mm. definitely got it on DVD and it's like, well, no, let's get this on blue. 4K now you say? Okay, no, yeah. this is one that definitely warrants that. So, yeah. And the, and also, like, I'm I'm a huge fan of any sort of wig or makeup artistry that becomes iconic. In that Dracula wig, the old man version of Dracula with the kind of oh, yeah. giant buns, like, <laughs> so brilliant. Like, who thought of that? Like, because it did become like a cliche. Like, it sort of it was it was spoofed in everything for about five or six years. Was oh yeah, yeah if you if you're doing some kind of elaborate, you know, uh, high end, you know, horror, then you have a character with these gigantic like buns on the head. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, so much uh, imagination, so much detail went to yeah, almost every aspect of that movie. It's yeah, it's, it's a, it's so great. Yeah, I know that feeling though when you're sitting in a cinema or you're sitting on the couch with someone, and 
you've maybe built up enough confidence. It's like, I've spent enough time with these people. I'm going to reveal, you know, this is a movie I really, really like. You know, this is a movie that says something to me. And you show it to them, they're like, yeah, that was good. Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah, can we watch something else? You know, what's on after this? Like, you're, you're not seeing the deeper message of Joe versus the volcano. What's going on here? <laughs> I had a friend invite me over to watch Step Brothers because uh, I hadn't seen it in the cinemas and he had it on DVD and he was like, you have to see this film. It's fucking brilliant. It is so funny. And he put it on and sat there and watched me watch the movie for like 90 minutes. Oh. He was looking at me and I'd never felt so much pressure to laugh at a film. <laughs> and I must admit that in my first viewing of Step Brothers, because I felt this intense pressure, I didn't enjoy it. I didn't get it. It was just seemed so like an, uh, such an anomaly. What is going on? Is, is, is this a script? Is it all improv? Whatever. <laughs> I love the film now, now that I don't have the crippling pressure of yeah. trying to like, like it for my friend. <laughs> Uh, my next one is uh, this was actually a bit of a reversal. This was not something that I recommended. This is where I was the um, recommendee. No, yeah, not the unwilling partner, uh, okay. party, but uh, it, it, it was an odd situation. But I think it can basically be summed up as in my parents were either irresponsible or too cheap to spring for a babysitter. Because there were two occasions that I definitely recall that uh, I was brought along with them to a Sunday matinee at the uh, Village Twin down here in Geelong, the way it used to be. When I was about seven or eight years old, we saw a movie called The Devil's Playground, an iconic Australian movie, yeah, directed by the great Fred Skepsy, uh, about a uh, an all-boys Catholic school and sort of crises of faith and uh, among the students and the teachers. It's a, it's a really great movie. It's incredibly poetic and uh thoughtful and um, impactful and full of great symbolism. And I just didn't get it at all. I was just like absolutely terrified by it. I mean, it was talk about being something, being above your pay grade. This was yeah, way above mine. But then a few years later, um, when I was about 10 or 11, they did the same thing and took me to see The Elephant Man. Oh, yes. I was talking about this on the weekend. Now, it's, it's, again, a beautiful movie, probably one of my – do you have a difference between this is a movie that I really respect and admire, it's in my top ten of, like, this is great art and top ten favourites? Do you um, – you know what I mean when I say Yeah, like, 100%. Yeah. No, I, I think you get, get definitely have two lists. There's movies that you – are your go-tos that you love dearly and then there's films that you really appreciate. You know, I think you have to – you've got your crowd-pleasing fair in one column and then you've got yeah. your high art in the other. So, yeah, I totally get that. Yeah. And, look, I will have the Elephant Man certainly in that list of like, oh, I respect you so much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but seeing it at uh, 10 years old – that's not really a time that you should be watching David Lynch, unless it's maybe the straight story. But even then, that's probably yeah. Because I, I didn't see the straight story until I was about in my forties, and then I was like, "This was the perfect time to watch this." And also, I'm never going to stop crying. Yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> not exactly like Bram Stoker's Dracula, but this is incredibly impressionistic and artistic, and it's got you know a, a, a really rich visual imagination and mm. a lot of stuff that is probably is going to go over the heads of so many people, let alone a 10-year-old. Yeah. But also, you know, it's quite unflinching in how inhuman 
human beings can be to someone they perceive as different. Yeah, it really, it really exposes you, if you're a child especially, to cruelty, the notion of cruelty, and that someone can be victimized for, for, for no wrongdoing other than just being who they are. And especially given that the movie is, present, is presenting um, John Merrick as this exquisite, kindly, artistic soul who is then just exploited by, first of all, the, uh, the circus that keeps him as a freak, but then when he's rescued, essentially, and taken to this hospital where he's sort of semi-exploited again by Anthony Hopkins, who's the doctor who's looking after him. But there's this night watchman who thinks, I can make a few bucks by smuggling people in after dark and giving them their own private elephant man show. You know, a bunch of people come in, they're all drunk, they're like, oh, check this guy out. Oh, he's so fucking ugly. And, you know, they're trying to pour booze down his throat. He's made this exquisite model of the church outside his window. It just gets smashed. And I remember seeing that. I, that's the thing that really hit me. And I was just, uh, <laughs> you know, I was uh, an absolute wreck. And I think my folks are looking at me like, we probably should have hired a baby today. <laughs> I remember hearing Edgar Wright tell an anecdote about seeing, like, going to a revival cinema in New York to see a screening of The Elephant Man and being in there, like, virtually empty cinema. But there was a guy in there who Edgar realized halfway, like, 20 minutes into the film that this guy had come in expecting to see a horror film, that The Elephant Man was a horror movie because he heard the guy mutter when John Merrick appears for the first time, yeah, yeah, get her, Elephant Man. <laughs> And I've got to say, when I was a kid. You thought the elephant man was Jason Ford? Yeah, but I thought the same thing when I was a kid because all I saw but was the he's movie got the bag poster. On his head. It's a bag over his head like Jason yeah. Voorhees. And then I had my older brothers and sisters go, oh, no, no, he, he's not. Um, he's a horrifically deformed man. And in my like six-year-old brain, I actually, I had nightmares about the elephant man having never seen a frame of the movie. And I imagined, I, I, I to this day I can see it, I had these um, recurring nightmares of me sort of running through a field, like classic horror movie setting, and the elephant man pursuing me. But my elephant man looked like like a horror An version elephant? of Baba. Yeah, it oh. was like, <laughs> imagine like a gritty reboot like- of Baba, but he's chasing me. And it was just like, and then when I actually saw the real movie, I'm like, oh, oh, my, like my version of Elephant Man was much more scary than the real man, the real thing. <laughs> Baba chasing you, <laughs> gritty reboot. Yeah, it was. Oh, it was so. I mean, but yeah, I became fascinated by the Elephant Man like through my right up into my teens. It was. Just, I mean, I guess a lot of people do. He is when it comes to sort of outsiders and freaks and all that kind of stuff, like. That is the kind of um, – that's the high watermark, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah. And, look, I've revisited it many, many times since. And, uh, look, I'll, I'll still cry at it, but mainly because it's just such a beautiful film. I mean, it, it's almost – it's weird. When you talk about David Lynch, you tend to think, oh, my, he's that guy who makes those movies that are, you know, insanely sexy and violent and weird and all that kind of stuff. And this is so touching mm. and uh, – I mean, it, it's only it was only his second film, right? Because he did a race ahead. Yeah, it's just it it was such a misleading sophomore effort. <laughs> like you know, absolutely. you would you could have easily seen him going down the classy Oscar bait you know route after that film because it has you know more of the hallmarks of those kind of movies than what we'd eventually know to be the hallmarks of a Lynch movie. Absolutely, yeah, and I mean. People clearly recognised that he had talent from a razor head because, I mean, Mel Brooks is the producer of The Elephant Man. He sort of he 
plucked him out of uh, obscurity and said, yeah, direct but this Mel prestige Brooks project thought he was Man. buying a comedy. Uh, he, just like me, thinks <laughs> we thought it was a, a hilarious tale about a man who thinks he's an elephant. <laughs> <laughs> he, he clearly thought he was making the Baba movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, but also George Lucas you know, sort of approached him to direct uh, Return of the Jedi as well. I mean, it's incredible that these very commercial people with these very commercial sensibilities were like, we want a razorhead guy to to make our movies. Yeah, I wonder if that system exists anymore. Like, I guess it does in a weird kind of way, where you know, an indie director will be plucked off the back of doing one film and be given like a like a Disney property or a Marvel, you know, well, that, Marvel thing to direct because it's that's Colin like, Trevorrow. We can boss. We can he, boss him around. <laughs> this yeah, is awesome. I mean, he, he Colin Trevorrow had like that low budget indie safety not guaranteed and. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, they said, oh, yeah, we'll give you Jurassic World. You do that. Yeah. We interesting to say, well, and, and then he made, what did he make? Was it, a 9, was it a 9-11 film? He made something that was oh, very poorly received. No, he made a movie called Book of Henry. Was that, was that not about 9-11? No. No, I think it's okay. about like a kid who realises that his next door neighbour is an abuser or a murderer or something, but then the kid dies, but he's left behind this series of like instructions to his mum, I think is Naomi Watts. Right. right. This guy's evil and here's how you can kill him. Or something <laughs> like that. I'm, I may be completely wrong, but I everything I've heard about Book of Henry is like, how did this get made? <laughs> yeah. I guess he's uh, Kevin Colin Tra- Colin Trevorrow Trevorrow is following the one for them, one for me model, clearly. <laughs> Very much so except he made one for him and then uh, like don't make any more for you. Just make <laughs> Jurassic World movie for us. <laughs> All right. My final film guy is a uh, uh, another instance in which I, I misread the crowd. In fact, did I misread the crowd or did I misread my own nostalgia for this film? Because um, we'd been at a party. Um, a bunch of people come back to our place. So we'd been up all night. It was probably like getting near like – dawn and it's like oh let's put on like a weird cult movie you know just as we're all sort of like chilling out just something to kind of like you know really blow our minds and and then send off this party in style and i said you know what would be great what i haven't seen in ages let's watch the dark crystal that's fucking i remember as a kid it was so weird and and i put this film on and you'd think i'd put on silo like the way (laughs) that everyone in the room reacted was like ugh. Oh God! Like it's not exactly Uncanny Valley, but it's 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 adjacent to Uncanny Valley. Why is everything in this so creepy looking? Like even the mm. Gelflings, the elf-like. I mean, let's 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 try and what's the plot? It's like a it's another planet, but back in time, and it's a Gelfling has to go find this shard of a magic crystal to restore order to the universe. So that's that's the rough kind of hero's journey. But it's filled with all these Jim Henson puppets. And it's kind of the experience you have when you see Thunderbirds for the first time, where at first you're amused and then you're kind of slightly put off because there is something <laughs> weird about these semi-lifelike puppets, you know, the weird kind of dead-eyed stare. And I just remember, like, being at this party and it was the scene where that one Skeksy is getting um, excommunicated from the Skeksy-like fraternity or whatever – and all the other Skeksis, who are these horrible, what, they're like emu slash lizard creatures. Yeah, they so, their proportions apart. are so odd. 
Yeah. They, they strip this Skeksy apart. They rip off his clothes and expose his hor- horrible, like, Geiger-style, like, spiny back. And the whole thing is just fucking repulsive. And at that point, one of my friends jumped up and turned the TV off and put the music back on and was like, we're fucking not watching <laughs> The Dark Crystal. And I've not been brave enough to go back. Like, I've gone back and watched lots of horror movies, but The Dark Crystal, I'm like, oh, man. I just don't think I can see that weird little puppet with his fucking flute. <laughs> like, I just, he scares me. You, you're 100% right about the uh, the Gelflings or the Halflings or whatever the hell they're called. I mean, the Skeksis, at least, they're monstrous. Okay, I can make enough of a stretch. It's like, oh, I, can, I can sort of roll with that, even when they're ripping each other apart. But they're, yeah, the other ones, they they really do have that. Are you, that so, are you a human? Yeah, yeah, yeah that. <laughs> Almost like a kabuki mask or something. Yeah, yeah and the, you're right. They're doing that occasional head tilt. Yeah. You know what it is? I, I don't know if there's a person inside that puppet suit or- It's, oh, it's no, the reason why I think like Megan, Mathrigan has hit so oh. hard is it's that, oh, yeah, it's it's the Uncanny Valley thing, but they've used yeah. it to horrific effect, which was not the intention <laughs> of Jim Henson, I'm pretty sure. And I remember too in the 80s, like there was a lot of- publicity around this film and they you know there's behind the scenes specials on tv and stuff and and i i remember seeing as a kid and loving it but it's weird that you know normally it happens the other way around where you're terrified as a kid and then as an adult you can appreciate it i loved it as a kid had no memory of being disturbed by any of that imagery but as an adult i'm just like this is gross and weird. I might have to revisit it now as well. There was did Netflix do like a reboot or something? There was a reboot, and I, I sampled that, but it's just like I couldn't handle it. Like I think we've got to a point with puppeteering, like the sophistication of CGI. I, and I'm not like a CGI guy. I, I, I love practical effects, but I also think that we suspended our disbelief a lot harder <laughs> back when it was stop, oh, yeah. the days of stop motion and animatronic puppets. You know, I actually rewatched the T-Rex scene in the first Jurassic Park again, like last week, just to, just to see it. And that's incredible. Like that is, holds up a hundred percent. That is the perfect blend of animatronics and CGI. But that's, if you tip it too far in either direction, if it's all CGI where it's all weightless and physics doesn't apply, it feels weird. And if it's all just fucking puppets, it's just weird and unnerving and feels kind of dumb. You know what I mean? It's kind of, I don't know, uh, it, like it's Thunderbirds dumb. Well, there was definitely that phase though in the um, in the mid-80s where I think everyone was viewing Jim Henson and, you know, the Henson studios as like, yeah, they're, they're – not taking it to bold new places, but they're moving it forward. They're moving puppetry forward and, you know, not just for kids anymore. And I don't know. I mean, I guess the Dark Crystal and Labyrinth have their ongoing fandom, but at the same time you look at it and you go, I don't think it moved the needle quite as much as you think it did or what they hoped it would. There's a difference between Labyrinth, though, and the Dark Crystal, and it's a level of kind of, I guess, sophistication or maturity in like Dark Crystal tries to be a bit more sophisticated, whereas Labyrinth embraces the goofiness. The puppets still look cute. Even the scary ones are kind of cute. And I think we can sit Muppets in that category. But when you're trying to give me a humanoid character like the Gelfling, I just want to Mm. kill it. (laughs) My first impulse is to pick up a heavy object and bludgeon it to death before it hurts me or my family. Well, yeah, I mean, 
Well, you get the example of that as well with, uh, you know, all that stuff that Robert Zemeckis was doing with the- um, uh, Polar Express. With his and- motion capture, particularly the Polar Express. Everyone's yeah. like, I'm not getting on board this train. I don't care if it's Tom Hanks. It doesn't look like Tom Hanks. It looks like weird simulacrum of, of Tom Hanks. And no, I'm not boarding the Polar Express, even if it is taking him to the North Pole. Forget it. I mean, it will be interesting to see if someone, you know, if, if the way, because obviously robotics are getting to a point where it's incredibly sophisticated. I wonder if there will ever be an instance in which there will be an animatronic character in a film that is just oh. so fucking dope, like the articulation and the creativity mm. and the design is so dope that you're like, I mean, not that necessarily that it has to be a human, but it's just a creature that you're like, ah, oh, that's awesome. Like, I, do you mean make that a character of the whole film? Like iRobot, but yeah. Good. The robot in it is actually there with with Will Smith getting yeah. slapped. Um, yeah, or a bit uh, like um, the robot in Interstellar, that kind of obelisk that sort of oh, yeah, yeah. rotates around or, or something like that. I mean, because I think that was practical for parts, and but mainly CGI. Mm. But I, yeah. I wonder if there will ever be something that, I don't know, like like a dark crystal, like a, a, a fantasy creature or a fantasy character that is animatronic that doesn't make us like recoil in horror. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, my uh, my final uh, final selection is again a bit of sort of a bit of a retrospective, bit of sort of looking back and going. This was good at the time. In hindsight, not one hundred percent sure what we're thinking. Although, you know, I think we were all young and innocent and um, just enjoying it for what it was. Back in the early eighties, my uh, very good friend JP and I would go to the movies occasionally, and you know. The first thing we saw, they were a very popular band, and of course they were making their uh, segue into well, a stab at movie stardom. It was the Village People, and they, you know, put together "Can't Stop the Music," which now anyone who stays up late on New Year's Eve will realise is the the gayest movie ever made. <laughs> so here's a uh, two ten year old boys going off again, gun, the- but, but pretty gay. <laughs> Not quite. On on par with two ten-year-old boys. Yeah, two two tickets to can't stop the music, please. And I think we're enjoying, you know, you know, do the milkshake and YMCA and all that. But you look at YMCA, the the number in that in particular, it's like, oh my gosh, there is. This is a real sausage fest. Yeah, you know, so, many, so, much so many gym, so many gym shorts in that music video. Absolutely, yeah. And, and now you look at it, and yeah, honest to God, I mean, if you watch it on New Year's Eve, because Channel Nine shows it every um, every midnight on January first, it is really, it's not even gay subtext; it's text. <laughs> I mean, it, and I'm not saying this is like, oh, that's terrible, but I'm I'm just I'm just remembering two innocent young ten year old boys from Geelong going, he's like, you can't stop the music and just being subjected to all this imagery that we probably couldn't process, but we're going, not sure this is what I was expecting. buying a ticket for. I do remember yeah. my favourite scene in that is when the biker uh, does his audition and he sort of just like happens to stumble in late and they're like, well, can you sing? And just on the spot he just belts out like a bit of kind of uh, just like falsetto singing. Opera. But, yeah, but it's like. Does he just get about like that during the day? Like that's the thing about the movie. It's like <laughs> the characters that they play is their day to day clothes. Yeah, I mean, one of them is actually a cop, and yeah, one just got out of the military or whatever. But yeah, but Leatherman just rocks up to what to pay pay a speeding fine. 
but yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, JP and I were just like, yeah, I'm going to go buy the soundtrack after this. It's really catchy. But yeah, every time it's been on TV or, you know, someone will mention, I'll give JP, well, remember we saw Can't Stop the Music? Yeah, what was that about? But then not long after that, and this was, I was reminded of this because, you know, the recent uh, tragic passing of Olivia Newton-John, there was a, a bit of a tribute on. I think Channel 7 played Greece and then Xanadu back-to-back. And I hadn't seen Xanadu in goodness knows how long, but JP and I saw that together as well back in 81 or 80. And, um, you know, because it had a banger of a soundtrack by ELO and, you know, every young red-blooded male was um, in love with ONJ. So I went to check that out and that's – I think when we talked about Labyrinth, I said, you know, this was a time when cocaine ruled the world. Xanadu, I don't know what they were on when they were sort of, when they greenlit this or put this all together because it's, it is a real mishmash of everything. Yeah. I have a soft spot for like movies based on bands. Like one of the best ever, and I don't even know where you can find it, is um, Kiss versus the Phantom of the Phantom. Park. Uh, well, Phantom of the yeah. was, is that what it is? Park. That is, yeah, yeah. It is such a weird film, and I think like Peter Chris or someone's dialogue is completely ADR'd, and it doesn't like so oh. it doesn't match his mouth, like when he talks. <laughs> but it's just such a weird, like it's a weird uh, half baked mythology behind who Kiss are, and like they have magic powers and stuff. And I just love the fact that, like, it's so clearly a cash grab. It's so clearly a cash grab. And you're working with people, like, even A Hard Day's Night or Help, which are often held up as being, like, really great examples, they're terrible acting. Like, it is, (laughs) you know, it's, I guess you'd say charismatic, you know, musicians surrounded by really good, capable supporting actors. Like, the Spice World, I think, is a great example of that. I think Spice World's a lot of fun because they cast it really well and it's just dumb and stupid and fun and you're not meant to take any of it seriously. Yeah. But then there's the occasional attempt to string a storyline together or, or have some, like I said, some mystical powers attributed to the band or the name <laughs> of the band. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Well, that's the thing. I mean, a, an outfit like Kiss that's so larger than life I mean, you'd think you'd put them in like some sword and sorcery kind of deal, or but instead they're in like a Scooby Doo mystery in a in a second rate amusement park or something. Have you? That so, reminds um, me. Have you seen? Oh God, what is Studio Six Six Six? The Foo Fighters. I have actually. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. That was um, again like such a. I to be honest, I really enjoyed it. I was not expecting to enjoy it, and it was a lot more serious than I thought it was going to be. And so people who don't know, it's um, uh, the premise is the Foo Fighters have to write their 10th album and they move into this haunted house where a, a murder happened 20 years ago to record this new album and Dave becomes possessed by the spirit that is inhabiting this house and, uh, you know, forces his band to make this, like, was it like 40-minute single track or something like that. He goes with Brian Wilson on them. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's very um, Tenacious D. It's the greatest song in the world. That's what they're making. And then, but I thought they were going to lean heavily on the comedy and a little bit on the horror, but I think it actually leans more heavily on the horror. There is comedy elements to it, but some of those kills, like, fuck me. I was watching on a plane and there's a scene, spoilers, in which uh, one of the band members um, is having sex with a neighbour and they get cut in half with a chainsaw, like both of them, (laughs) mother on top of each other. And it is Full on, like not the kind of thing you want to watch on a plane. I mean, I'm not sort of bad movie recommendation, but it was a <laughs> bad movie to be watching in public. Absolutely. And I remember when it came out and, you know, saw the uh, posters or listings for it, it was like, Studio 666, 
rated R. Yeah. You don't really see that that often these days. Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, I think uh, uh, my girlfriend uh, Lou and I watched it after we saw the Foo Fighters when they came to Geelong. Uh, they performed last year and went, oh, okay, let's see what this Dave Grohl Foo Fighters movie is like. This is insanely bloody. What yeah. the hell's going on here? That's it. I think they made it during COVID. Like it has that feeling because it's all set in one house and it just sort of like feels like they called their buddies, anyone who they could get over. Like it's got all these cameos like, like um, Jeff uh, Gal- is Garling um, and uh, uh, Last Man on Earth guy, what's his name? Will Forte. Oh, Will Forte. And uh, Whitney Is Cummings. there a John Carpenter connection? Did oh, Carpenter he doesn't do music. the music? Yes, yeah. he does. I mean, to be honest, I actually – Quite liked it. I'm not going to lie. It was not what I was expecting. But I, but I also watched it after Taylor Hawkins' tragic passing. Right. And those scenes have a whole new kind they of do, like sentiment yeah. when you sort of see him being murdered or talking about, you know, him dying because they're playing themselves. That's the other weird thing. Hmm. <laughs> I was kind of hoping now, at some point. Now we go- need Daisy Jones and the 666. Yeah, exactly. A part of me kind of was hoping that like the ghost of Kurt Cobain would appear in the film somehow, but <laughs> I guess they thought that was distasteful. Or uh, the killer turns out to be Chris Novacelli. Who's <laughs> now a Trump supporter, apparently. You got Nickelback oh. Nickelback going behind Bernie Sanders and Chris Novacelli backing Trump. Who would have thought we'd end up in these crazy times, guys? Crazy times. <laughs> Well, that is another video store. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Guy, if people want to find you online, where can they? Well, if you want to uh, venture into Twitter and uh, sort of brave the uh, the Elon Musk murk, uh, you can find me at Robert Guy Davis. But if you're interested in podcasts, and particularly podcasts about popular culture and 90s nostalgia, uh, you can check me out on Four Finger Discount uh, with my uh, co-host Brendan Dando. We cover The Simpsons, one four-finger discount, but we also have shows on South Park, Seinfeld, uh, um, Futurama. Uh, guys, reco- guys recorded back-to-back podcast today. If you're wondering why he sounds a bit weary, this is like <laughs> it's coming up on five hours of just talking. So just cut, just cut a bit of slack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My apologies to Charlie and to you fine listeners out there. Uh, but, yeah, you can um, Google four-finger discount and, um, yeah, by all means check it out when you're not listening to Charlie Clawson and his cavalcade of chums. Uh, we'll be putting the links to all guys' stuff on the episode description as well as links to the films we have discussed in this episode. But for now, I'm Charlie Clawson. I'm Guy Davis. Listener.